Hi, everyone. Welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host, Jason. You'll hear from our other co-host, Rucker, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. Our guest today is Ian Urbina, the director of the Outlaw Ocean Project. The project is a nonprofit journalism organization based in Washington, D.C., that produces investigative stories about human rights, environment, and labor concerns on two-thirds of the planet covered by water. Urbina won a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news and won a George Polk Award for foreign reporting. Several of his stories have been adapted into major feature films, and his reporting for a New York Times Magazine article called The Secret Life of Passwords was nominated for an Emmy Award. He has degrees in history and cultural anthropology from Georgetown University and the University of Chicago. Before joining the Times for roughly 17 years as a staff reporter, he was a Fulbright Fellow in Cuba, and he also wrote about the Middle East and Africa for various outlets, including the LA Times, Harper's, and Vanity Fair. On this episode, we'll talk to Urbina about the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. According to its website, the project represents a novel way to do journalism. Aimed at people who might not otherwise have encountered this reporting, the music renders stories more viscerally and delivers them to the public through different channels. The music project's goal is to raise awareness and stoke a sense of urgency about the human rights, labor, and environmental abuses that occur at sea. So please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Ian Urbina. Hello, Ian. How, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you today? Good. Um, we're talking to you from Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Cool. Because I know you're frequently traversing around the world, so it's nice to see that you're back home. Um, I'd like to start by reading you a quote and seeing if in your decades-long your career as a journalist you can place it. Here we go. I go as hard as I can and try to win and see what I can do. It's a matter of concentrating and being psyched, but it's also a matter of not getting too tense and staying relaxed. I found in three years I've learned how to find the balance. Oh, wow. Um, it sounds like a running quote uh, is uh, from a younger me, maybe. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, it's from you. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing. So that quote is um, from you when you were a young high school runner at St. Albans. You really did your homework. That sounds right. So uh, I couldn't help but but call it call it out because uh, I noticed in the article that uh, you suffered from Osgood Schlatter disease, which I also did. Hmm. Um, it's not it's not very fun uh, for those who are listening and don't have no idea what it is. I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't. Um, it's this thing where it looks like an alien is growing out of your knee because uh, some tendons are pulling on your shin bone and swells up, and it's just it's not fun. Um, so I, I, I bring it up also partially, I'll try to try to transition this because uh, it really seems like, I mean, you won like national awards for, for your time um, as a runner um, in that part of your life. Is there anything that you learned at such, such a young age from your running days and how it kind of shaped how you approach your journalism work later in your career? Yeah, I mean, that's a really smart and surprising question. Um, but yes, I, I think that long distance running, I think athletics in general, or any anything, music, athletics, anything that really takes a lot of time to master, um, inherently teaches you the value of endurance. And um, running, and I was a long distance runner, um, surely taught that, plus sort of the value of pain, you know, um, that, that there is a purpose in certain types of pain if you spread it out. Um, so I think 
running helped me in grad school. Running helped me as an investigative journalist. Running helped me um, to build the journalism organization we have now just because it taught me that good things come to those who work at it for a long time. That makes a lot of sense. Obviously, a lot of our listeners are are in music, so I can't help but but notice that in in one of your Ella Ocean videos, you mentioned you've been a lifelong hip hop fan. Um, you want to talk about about that for a little bit? How you discovered hip hop? Maybe some of your favorite tunes growing up? Oh well, you know, I I'm I'm gonna date myself. I'm 49, and so you know, the references I make now to hip hop get a blank stare from my 18 year old son. You know, Kara <laughs> one and uh, you know, Beastie Boys and Run DMC. And, um, but, uh, you know, that, that's what was, um, Public Enemy, Chuck D, uh, you know, um, uh, that's what I grew up listening to and fell in love with, uh, and never turned back. Um, and, you know, all the way through to the likes of Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's not a rapper per se, but did something quite spectacular with hip hop in melding it with, an academic treatise and taking what might seem like an odd material or topic in Hamilton and using rap for what it can be used for, which is, you know, explanatory journalism. You know, in in my view, that's sort of what Hamilton is in a dazzling, beautiful, inspiring way. Um, So that's kind of what I wanted to do something like that with, um, with my reporting. But yeah, hip hop has been, I just think it's, you know, Chuck D famously said that, you know, hip hop is the CNN of black folk. Um, You know, it is really, I think, especially as hip hop has been internationalized, it is the sort of news wire of the street. And whether that street is in Taiwan or Beirut or or Caracas, you know, um, it's really a, a genre that, that, gives you an unvarnished and not always flattering and sometimes crass, but often really smart and polished and poetic um, anthropological sense of what's going on in a place that you rarely see reported on in traditional news venues. So I think like it's really important in that regard. And I have always respected it as such, you know, kind of as this, this, um, you know, uh, this almost um, other way to hear what people are feeling and thinking in different places. Mm-hmm. Fight the powers that be, right? Um, so <clears throat> you're an investigative journalist, uh, self-described, not necessarily a beat journalist. Could you, for those of us who are kind of, you know, strangers to this world, could you kind of like talk about that difference a little bit? Yeah, I mean, beat reporters, super essential, operate with different metabolism. They um, have usually a topic or a region or a person or a profession or whatever that is their beat. And their job is to um, own it, you know, to police that terrain like it's a backyard and anything that moves in it, they need to know what it is, where it's going and, and be ready to write about it if you're, if you're an, a print journalist. Um, so beat reporters also have to produce a lot more um, content. You know, often at the New York Times, if you're a beat reporter, you might be writing two stories, three stories a day. Um, and you also are doing stories that are meant to sort of that are a little bit closer to stenography. They're telling the consumer, the readers, what happened in a really um, flat way, if possible. Sort of, he said, she said, but not in a bad sense. You know, um, it's really just stenography um, of events. 
uh, and some analysis. Investigative journalism, enterprise journalism, long-form narrative journalism is, is something else. It has the luxury of time. So if you're in that realm, you have more time and freedom to work on things, to go deep, obsessively so, perhaps. Um, but you also have different expectations on you. There is more of an expectation that you're going to do things differently, more innovatively, with more polish, with more rigor, because you have that luxury of time, longer. Um, and so, uh, and you, I personally sort of think of investigative as having an a inherent um, professional mission of focusing on things that are broken that need to be fixed. You know, you're supposed to go out there, whatever it is, and find things that are wrong and, sh and cast, you know, really stark light on it in a very fair way, um, but, but really aggressively. It's prosecutorial in some sense. Um, and that's, that's what investigative journalists, as I think of them and us, are meant to do. And for those who have um, maybe not been as familiar with his work, it's it's covered co topics from unpaid immigrant detainees, Department of Defense and prison labor, Elliot Spitzer, um, prostitution scandal, the oil industry practice of fracking, which became promised land, I think, or at least inspired partially um, the 2012 uh, Matt Damon, Gus Van Sant movie, which is pretty cool. Um, so in 2017, you took a hiatus from the New York Times to produce this book uh, about lawlessness at sea, which eventually became Outlaw Ocean in 2019, made the New York Times bestseller list. Um, congratulations. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, optioned the book for documentary and scripted film purposes, which is pretty cool. Can you walk us through that time leading up to your decision to take that hiatus? Because obviously you had been at the Times for a long time at that point. Um, and what kind of compelled you to make that full-time jump? So, when I on staff at the Times, I was supposed to, I was an investigative reporter and I was, um, you know, tasked with finding either singular big stories that I'd get to work on for a while or series, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of stories that roll out as a series. I, I produced a series about lawlessness and, and crimes at sea around the world and in the paper, and that was called The Outlaw Ocean. And it was, you know, seven pieces on the front page and then a magazine story. And it really captured me topically in a way that nothing I had ever produced did before. And when my time was up after doing it for a year and a half or so, and my editor said, okay, it's time to choose a new target. Um, there was, there was a lot of stories that I hadn't gotten to that I really thought were super urgent. And what's distinct about that two thirds of the planet that's water is there's very little journalism coming from that space. And so that chasm between the anemia of the amount of journalism and journalists out there doing these things and the richness and virgin snow nature of the topics themselves, kind of, I, I was sucked into that chasm. So I decided, why don't I take a leave and go back out to sea with this amazing Brazilian videographer named Fabio Nascimento and let's produce a book, you know, uh, that captures those additional stories. So that's what I did. Can you explain maybe like elevator pitch of what Outlaw Ocean Music Project is and what you're ultimately trying to accomplish with it? Yeah, I mean, so what the Outlaw Ocean Music Project is, is a um, subordinate program, subordinate uh, project to the nonprofit organization I run, which is called the Outlaw Ocean Project. Uh, we produce stories, long form stories. Um, 
One of the things, though, that I left the Times and created this own my own organization to do differently was um, innovate in distribution of stories. So I thought there was a lot of really creative, smart things happening in the framing of stories and the reporting of stories and the presentation of stories. But I didn't feel like there was as much innovation and daring happening in how you get the stories out there into the world. And, you know, when I talked to my eight, then 16-year-old, now 18-year-old son, and he doesn't read the New Yorker, the New York Times, or Washington Post, but he consumes a lot of news. And the likes of his age demographic tell me that, or I watch and see that they're taking in a lot of information. They're very smart, they're informed, but they're often taking it in on alternate platforms, TikTok, YouTube, Spotify. I thought, well, rather than trying in the legacy journalism model, you know, of getting folks to come to your watering hole, be it the New York Times website, why not outservice? Like, you know, we're in the age of Uber and Amazon, right? Things are delivered. Um, so why don't we try to figure out ways to get these stories out to my 17-year-old son, be him in Havana or, you know, Reykjavik, you know, um, uh, and let's go to where they are. So that got me thinking, where are they? Well, there are lots of places, but a lot of them are consuming music and, and really learning a lot through music. And so that's interesting. And then the separate thought was, well, if you think of music, musicians as sort of storytellers who use a different language, their language is music, my language is words, Fabio's language is video. Well, what if we approach musicians and say, hey, would you be willing to take this reporting if you like it and think it's worthy, convert it into your language and your own aesthetic, and then very generously donate that time, your brand, access to your audience, et cetera, produce an album and we, and allow us to ride on your coattails, you know, and, and bring the journalism onto your music, even use sounds from the reporting itself, you know, um, in the songs to make it more authentic. And then that gets us onto these alternate platforms. And then people listen to music and are like, oh, that's interesting. That sounds good. That sounds bad. I want to consume more of it. And some percentage of them says, huh, I wonder what that's about. What are these images about? Why is it called that? What's that sound from? Why is it titled this? Who's this Urbina guy? And then they click over and they start reading the stories. Okay, so that's the conceit. That was the play. You know, and it requires and required historically a lot of generosity from musicians to play ball with us in that fashion. But it was all this idea of trying to get the journalism out in a different way to different people on different platforms. So you didn't consider uploading TikTok dances or is that like the next iteration? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, I, I report on really dark stuff, you know, sea slavery and murder. So it just felt, felt like the tone was a little off to be dancing on TikTok with that kind of content. So no. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the process of executing the music project in particular? Like how long did it take? Had you had any prior experience with the music industry or was this like a total crash course? Crash course. Yeah. I mean, complete novice and still learning to this day and even have had bumps on the way where I learned a lot, you know, uh, which I'm sure we'll discuss, but you know, I don't play music. I don't read music. I consume a lot of it. Um, uh, you know, in my free time, I sooner listen to my Spotify list than I do watch TV, you know? So, but I don't, didn't know anything about the music industry and just thought, well, why don't I just treat it like a reporter, which, you know, would learn, you know, read up and talk to people. Um, the process that we followed was initially I thought, well, maybe I'll sign five, 10 people 
and where should I start? Start with my own Spotify playlist, you know, and who would it be cool to actually meet that I've been listening to forever? And I start reaching out to those folks. And, and then when they, when I realized there might be something there and musicians were very generous and, and creative and daring and, and thought it was a cool idea and they would actually read the content and many of them thought it was worthy of supporting, then I thought, oh, well, this could be scaled up, you know, and we could actually make this international and grow as big as possible. The sky's the limit. Um, and so essentially what we began doing is first stage one was finding musicians that were already on my playlist. Stage two was looking for additional musicians, usually through the suggestive algorithm that Spotify provides. If you like this guy, try this one and sort of growing outward from there. And then listening to the, we would always, and I had help from staff, but listen to the musician and okay, is this lyric heavy? Is this artist really, really too small? And, and therefore we're going to dump a lot of money on it. And it, we might even not cover our costs because they're too small. Um, is the tone of what they produce something that might work with this, et cetera, et cetera. So we would sort of listen and get a feel for the musician and decide, should we reach out to them? And then we would reach out to them and we would pitch them. We and my staff would pitch them and say, hey, we have this crazy idea. Would you hear us out? Here's the idea. Um, and again, the key thing to emphasize here and to, to some significant degree has always been emphasized is um, our pitch was not a pitch that was a, a good, you know, the, the contract and the pitch and the relationship is not one that is about the finances and super beneficial for the musician. Our goal is to get help charitably from the musician to amplify the journalism. So everything is structured towards that goal. We've always been very open about that. And if a musician wants to release their own music and not give up any of their royalties or, or brand attention or anything, then this is not the project for them, you know, um, uh, because they could just release it with 100% of their royalties on their own, as you guys well know. But if they think it's a cool idea and they support the cause of the journalism we're doing and think it's creatively somewhat inspiring, then we'd say, okay, great, then join us. And that's sort of how we expanded. Got it. So you published some stats on your website. So like 2.2 thousand tracks or something, 500 plus artists, 90 plus countries. Then you have like top five genres, artist countries, top tracks. Um, Why did you decide to publish these stats and how do you hope uh, people use them? I actually got those from Sharpmetric Rucker. Oh, oh, you did. Because <laughs> you might not know that. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, thank you for saving me, Jason, because I was like, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah, so well, sorry, Rucker, that's my bad. So yeah, just, no, yeah, just you know, what Rucker just read is uh, uh we so our, our tool chart metric, it's like we we do stats in the music industry. And so that was some stuff from your Spotify playlist. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean well, well, I mean, but but Rutger, your question, the spirit of it, I think, is how what is our mission with regard to the statistics that we have and showing those statistics? Our mission is number one sort of to grow the size of what i sort of metaphorically think of as a 
creative international flash mob, right? And the, and the bigger the mob, the cooler the the performance art, right? And so um, our ambition has always been, and this is why you know on the front page of the website it says you know hundreds of musicians one mission, and we've got this huge global map with all these pulsating dots that show all the places where we've got musicians. The point is to say like, this is big and we're really proud of that. You know, like the bigger we can get, the better, because again, the mission is to try to get this music and the journalism out there in lots of places that a story that's locked down exclusively in the BBC or the Guardian or the New York Times won't get um, to those places. So that's, that's the point that we're aiming to achieve in showing the statistics that we do show. Got it. So since you're credited as a co-writer on um, some of these tracks, you have your own Spotify artist profile and presumably you have access to Spotify for artists. Um, have you poked around the platform at all? And if so, did it help at all? Again, I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot in the 24 months that we've been doing this. And I also feel like I'm still quite the novice. So, um, especially for you data, music data guys, <laughs> this guy is clueless, you know, about the data here. I occasionally look on there, um, on the Spotify over artist page with the simplistic, like curiosity of how many people right now are listening to any of our mm. music. And, and that kind of gives me this kind of little happy chuckle inside, like a hundred people in the world right now are consuming something that has to do with the outlaw ocean journalism that's cool you know i find that really neat and inspiring and it sort of from a morale perspective buoys me when the number is high i'm like wow this is really neat we're doing something really special here um uh so that's mostly what i look at the data for i often Haley, who is smarter and very data heavy and and runs the music project um, she watches the numbers monthly just to see how did that last month look, you know, and, and why did we see a bump up or a bump down and what's working and did using HubSpot, you know, to pitch playlists help us or was it a waste of money? Did um, those ad dollars we spent to promote those albums on Facebook help the albums or not? Like, what can we see? So she's looking at the data to some degree. Um, but I don't as much. Got it. And why did you decide to go the route of like having an artist profile versus like, say a curator who like curates playlists with these tracks on them? Well, a, on, the honest answer is I actually didn't know of the op the options, you know, again, mm -hmm recall that I was sort of building this airplane as it rolled down the runway sure. and making decisions that felt intuitive. Like, and I got some really good counsel and help from a guy named Kyle Dick at Nameless, which is a small label. And he's a real music professional who knows what he's doing. And, and his firm was generous enough to um, uh, join us and provide counsel on a lot of these things. Um, so in the early days, I think the, the thinking um, on my own and with counsel from Kyle was it makes sense to try to centralize all the music around a singular thing. And the 
the outlaw ocean name makes sense because if you're going to try to get folks to come and consume the journalism, then it needs to reside somewhere. And often, but that's not a musician, right? It's an NGO. Um, so there should be a person that's associated with it because people want to humanize this concept. And so it made sense for me to be um, the face of the organization and this idea. And that's why um, an artist paid made sense, even though I'm not a musician. So I guess we've been skirting around this a little bit, but um, I wanted to address briefly the, the Ben Jordan video, obviously. For those who aren't familiar, this video raised some misgivings he had about the Outlaw Ocean Project, and that led to a small social media firestorm um, and some articles published about it. So I guess just as like a preamble here, and maybe you're fully aware of this now just because you like got thrown immediately into it. But I think where Ben Jordan is coming from is a lot of artists get exploited. And this is like labels, PR companies, attorneys. Speaking as an artist myself, I've mm -hmm. experienced it over and over and over. And the classic ones are like pay to play schemes where like you pay your own money in order to work, essentially. Mm -hmm. Or we can't pay you, but we'll give you exposure. So those are like the classic you yeah. know, exploitative uh, things that have been around since the beginning of the music business. So I think that's the context that that was his mind frame. That's where he was coming from. I think he probably attached that to you unfairly. So I think, unfortunately, th this like the, the deal that you did is like essentially what labels the kinds of deals that labels do you sort of became the scapegoat for that in this video. So I just want to be like fair to all sides there. Yeah. And you were coming into the music industry from another world. So you probably didn't even understand all of that context going on there. But rather than rehash everything that's already been like written about, uh, all the contract stuff and whatever, I was curious what the learning process was like for you going through all this, like both the hard realities of the complexities of the music business, but also just like what effect it had on you and how you are approaching this project. And the learning process of the, of the project writ large or of the recent kind of, you know, spanking that I took, um, which one are you asking about? I guess both. Uh, has it affected how you are navigating the future of the project or like what lessons were learned there? Yeah. No. Well, first of all, I appreciate how fair you're being to all sides, not just to me in your rendering. And I think it's quite accurate what you say. The, the backdrop here is a legitimate, true, uh, important backdrop, which is one in which um, this workforce, musicians, have a long history of exploitation and frustration, et cetera. Um, so, and, and so I think you're, you're, you're really on point with that. Um, I think that you're also on point to say, um, you know, that's definitely not um, how we, by motivation, nor behavior, actual outcomes, handled this. Um, uh, and that's where I think some of the um, video and, and the subsequent um, kind of uh, 
firestorm uh, was unfair and inaccurate. Um, uh, because at the end of the day, I do think it's important to treat people openly and transparently and um, give them a decision to make. Here's the contract. We're not going to hide anything from you. Here's our mission. Um, this is probably not the, 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 the gig for you if you are looking at this for, as a financial opportunity and you guys are workers and you've got bills to pay and you need to be thinking about things as a financial opportunity or not. This is the kind of thing to look at as a um, uh, something that you would, as a sort of a donation, a charitable sort of thing that you would get involved with because you think it's a cool idea and want to participate, but not because you're going to come out making a lot of money on it. And we were always very, very clear on that point. And I personally don't think it's wrong to ask people. I'm half my day is spent doing teaching classes for free and doing all sorts of stuff for free. You know, we all are engaged in charitable endeavors, supporting things we believe in that are interesting and fun. And, you know, and this is no different than that. Um, and so a lot of musicians and the vast majority of musicians who signed on um, understood that and stayed signed on, you know, 450 of the original 500 are still in prod. Now, all that said, definite lessons learned and mistakes made on my part. Among those, number one, you know, when you're interacting, especially with younger musicians who are young and vulnerable and hungry, like you probably want to go the extra mile to be thinking about what they're not thinking about and sort of messaging at them, you know, extra hard, the point that I've been making to you guys. Hey, just to be clear here, this isn't going to result in a Netflix documentary that you're going to be optioned or, you know, just because I'm associated with these things doesn't mean that this music is going to like take off and this is going to be a launch pad for you. Do this only if you enjoy it for these reasons. So I definitely learned through this that I can be, should be an RDM clear on that kind of stuff. Um, I think I also... Um, we made some, I sort of tried to <laughs> channel Ted Lasso, you know, and, and sort of thought, okay, what would Ted Lasso be the goldfish? Exactly. Like not the panic attack part, but more the like, um, just a, a fair, good leader, you know, like, okay, what would he do in this situation? I was like, okay, don't defend yourself. Um, except maybe a little bit, mostly focus on owning the stuff that you should own and then try to figure out what you can do as radical as those things may be to genuinely fix those things. And so that's kind of like what I did and what my staff did. And we had a meeting talked about and thought, okay, let's like think um, about radical things we can do that take to heart their frustrations. And what can we do no matter the cost to us? So step one was like, okay, what presently we're taking at that moment, we're taking 50, and this was all transparent. It was contractually signed. We didn't bamboozle folks into doing it, but they all signed on to a revenue made on the music. 50% goes to support us doing more journalism and music, and 50% goes back to the musician. And I said, okay, what if we just blow that up right now? And we say, hey, we hear you. We're going to change unilaterally, whether you want it or not. Like we're going to change those economics right now. We're going to make 100% of any streaming revenue made go to you. You just got to kind of like click this button so, to affirm the new splits. And we're going to do that because we hear the points that are being made and we want to get out of the finances business. Because again, our main mission here is really to get the journalism out there 
And so let's get at, we hope that we might make some money with that 50% revenue and that would cover the cost of the reporting, which is insanely expensive. But it's just, it seemed just simpler to like shift that. And that was a radical move. It meant we lost a huge amount of money because we dumped a lot of money on the front end, making album art, music videos and ad buys. And we said, okay, let's just cut those losses. We'll just take them on and let's just switch the splits. We did that right away. Okay, that's a pretty big move and changes the structure. We also said, anyone who's not happy with anything that we've done, we're going to make it easy for you to leave with no bad feelings. And we're going to give you the music. Like the music is now yours. You own it. You don't have to take the sound effects out of it. You can reload it, take it somewhere else. Here's just all you got to sign off on that cancels the first contract. So that was also another radical move. So these are sort of the lessons learned that we thought, how can we restructure it so that we can get back to focusing on the core mission, which is not um, making people angry or correcting the record or defending ourselves and is instead recruiting people that get it, really like it and are interested in joining and continue to grow. And so those are the big lessons and changes we made. Honestly, a lot of labels should look to this example and what, how you reacted, like how you learned and changed the contracts and gave the rights back to artists. I think labels should look to this and be like, we should do this too. <laughs> like I mean, this is I, the right I, thing to do. Play the devil's advocate from a fairness point of view, right? Like it's not fair. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm happy with the decisions we made. But if a label puts music into your album, right, they upfront money, right, and they they and you sign a contract with that label that says you understand the terms and there's no bamboozlement or anything like that, and then you're disgruntled later on, I don't actually think from a purely fairness point of view that the label then stomaching the losses of what they put in and giving all the rights back is actually fair to that partner in the contract. And so I actually don't think that from a general point of view, just because artists are like, hey, I'm not making enough here, unless the label has fallen down on its obligations to market the album, which is their job, okay, then the artist has a legitimate gripe. You were supposed to do this, you didn't do this, the music isn't earning for me, and that's because of you, we gotta talk. But if the, if the deal is transparent, and the splits are transparent, and the label puts in money up front, and then the artist says, I'm unhappy, the label taking all the losses, that to me doesn't feel fair to the label in general. I'm, again, not speaking about us. I am very happy with the move we made because we can weather the storm, take the losses, and then move forward with the real mission. Yeah, sure. I think the real thing for artists is like the ownership of the copyright. Um, and that's why I think a lot of deals now are licensing deals. So yeah. the labels don't actually um, own the copyright of the artist uh, and the artist has the control to do yeah. what they want. I think that's the important part. That makes sense. Yeah. And again, I think like if, if, a, if, a, if tomorrow human rights watch said, Hey, Rudger, would you make a song for us? And we're asking you for a charitable thing. It's going to be the theme song for our, you know, you know, campaign against domestic violence. And we're looking for you to donate to us. But the only way we can do this, Rutger, is if you donate it in full. Because only if we own it can we then use it in these other ways, our legal department tells us. And so they come to you and they're very transparent about it. And they ask you straight up. And then you say, 
yeah, man, you guys do good work. I really care a lot about this issue of domestic violence. Yeah, let me, let me throw down a track and give it to you as a gift. To me, I don't feel like there's any um, exploitation or um, crime or immor- immorality there. If Rutger is a adult and makes the decision to say, yes, I'm going to give this to you and you own it. Like he, he made that decision um, and he's donating it to them and he's donating in a way that they actually can use it. And they asked him straight up. So to me, I don't always think that um, a musician giving something in full is wrong. I just think that the musicians should really go in with their eyes open and make that decision. Um, and most contracts should not be those, right? Like most contracts for you to pay your rent, you need to not be giving all your stuff to Human Rights Watch. <laughs> you know, like you need to be selling your stuff in a licensed fashion so you can monetize it. That makes sense to me too. Part of the inspiration for the Outlaw Ocean Music Project was kind of what you saw you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda do with Hamilton. In your, more in your area of the world, you know, the, the journalism world, have you seen other projects kind of use music or maybe it's not even music, but maybe, maybe it's gaming, maybe it's mm. some other form of entertainment. Have you seen other similarly driven um, investigative journalism journalism projects kind of launch in such a way, using multimedia as a way to amplify the message? Well, all right. So no, when it comes to investigative, because it's a, it's a radioactive product, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty dark typically and hard hitting and it's a hard thing to package and transform into other forms of art and also just traditional legacy outlets are typically the ones that have the budget to do really good investigative because it's expensive and they tend to be risk averse. And, and so for those cultural reasons and, um, but the notion of taking journalism of various sorts and teaming up with art in different forms, art being interactive art that we call video games, art being animation, stop motion, you know, um, sort of mini documentaries that get streamed on social via Instagram, art being mural projects, art being music. Um, that I've seen in isolated fashions um, used more often by advocacy groups that are pushing a campaign and trying to use art to message and, and sometimes by journalists. I personally think it's a really fertile um, idea to try to, if you can police certain rules, like you don't want to bastardize the journalism and convert it in a way that sort of like with mine, make misery porn, you know, like you got to be careful not to monetize and commercialize the story in a way that ends up disrespecting its focus. Um, but there are ways to do that. And, um, that's kind of one of the things I, I, I want to experiment with more, um, with music, but also with murals and installation arts and, and video games and sort of embed journalism into these things, um, more creatively, because I think that if, if we're going to break out of the demographic of people who read the New Yorker and the New York times and these sorts of venues and really speak to the rest of the world and different demographics, then we got to use other platforms. Well, cheers to you um, after what happened in the past few months to uh, continue to want to do that. Um, 
can is there anything that you can talk about regarding any of these other projects that you have um in the oven so to speak no i mean um we're talking with uh some video game companies that specialize in um creating video games that are um sort of socially conscious but still fun you know not like di too overly didactic um but that have a structure that's fictionalized but um exposes and teaches something in, in that experience and then between the the fictional gameplay layers they're often you can choose or choose not but there's there's the option to consume to switch gears and actually consume like a mini documentary it's like oh you just went through that want to see what that's about in the real world here's a quick you know thing you can consume i think that's a really neat um direction to go and we're talking with some companies on that and we've already done a bunch of things with animation and stop motion um artists uh we just had a huge investigation um in the new yorker about um some awful things happening in libya and we teamed up with um animators uh to make videos paired with music project music that was an alternate way to experience in a sort of more artistic rendering some of the issues in the story we also teamed up with Pop-Up Magazine and put the Libya investigation on stage. So theater and live presentations of the journalism is another thing that we've already done and we did with Libya and we put it on tour throughout the country um, uh, in five cities. And, and that was amazing, sell out, you know, crowd and, and really beautiful. Awesome. Well, more power to those projects. Um, I guess let's just wrap it up. Um, for those who have not seen it, um, please visit uh, theoutlawocean.com to check out um, this project. Specifically, um, you can also look at theoutlawoceanmusic.com to check out um, the music itself. Uh, it's also available on YouTube, Spotify. Um, if you just check it out, um, I'm sure it'll pop up when you search it. Um, is there anything else you want to kind of leave? You know, if people want to check out your work or or say hi to you on the social medias, if if you're if you're in that world, uh, Ian. No, I, I I just would say to you guys, I appreciate the fairness and rigor, you know, and nuance you brought to the topic. Um, uh, uh, it's a really smart um, handling, and and I think um, uh, you know, kind of the data is really where the gems are that tell you where people are moving and what they're doing. Um, so I wish I was more fluent in understanding it, but but I I think that um, it's probably what's going to kind of um, help us grow as an organization in these very projects. The music industry is sometimes more confusing than the open seas, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so anyway, thanks for your time, Ian. Um, and uh, please check it out, the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. Uh, all right, take care, Ian. Thank you. Hi, Ian. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right. Subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric. Metric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.